0: So, we'd like to welcome you to another edition of the Be Attento podcast right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My name is Aaron Wiggum, and we have a wonderful guest with us today who is going to be shedding some light with us around startups around ecosystem building around entrepreneurship and around some policy and so we are delighted to have this legend in his own right and this amazing man with us who's really taken on the banner of entrepreneurship he's taking it on his shoulders and we, we're glad that he's doing this work we bring to you none other than victor huang
1: who is founder and ceo of right to start welcome victor Thank you Aaron so so great to be here and you your your intro is w- way too kind it, it actually is an honor to 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 be with you and and uh you and I spent some time together recently in Tulsa and I just love that time we spent together it was so inspiring absolutely I think it was great just to pull up at a coffee shop and get to get to know each
0: other and our 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 crowd really metastasized pretty quickly right we it went from just about three or four of us to about a dozen of us around the circle just talking entrepreneurship and it was a great great afternoon. So let's get right into it. Uh what is the Victor Wang story? Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got from where you were, you know,
1: where you're from to now. Well, entrepreneurship to me is it's a very personal thing because it's actually the culmination of a long journey. You know, my my parents came to the US as immigrants. This was back in 1970 and they came with 300 bucks in their pockets and two bags, two bags of laundry, like actual like burlap bags. And they still have those bags with them because they didn't have luggage. For them, they came to seek the American dream. And so as we grew up, uh, they were educators. And so they believed very, very firmly in the power of education. And when I was lucky enough to get into Harvard when I was 18, it became something that I really felt compelled to do and so I went, but what I didn't realize, my parents didn't, they kind of kept this as sort of a secret from me was how much of a burden it was yeah. on them. First of all, they they got a second mortgage on their house to be able to send me to college. So they took, they put everything they owned wow. online. But the other thing they did is they started a business. Mm-hmm. And that business became critical because it enabled them to pay for me to go to college. And it was a side business that they did. And so I saw the power of that. My grandfather was also an entrepreneur. He ran a small retail store in Taiwan. And, and so I just saw the importance of what entrepreneurship could do to expand opportunity. But I also saw how hard it was. It was It's such a, a difficult journey. In fact, this was their second time trying to start something, my parents. And I realized all the things that stood in their way were things that were simple, simple little things that a lot of people never have to mm-hmm. worry about. If someone starts off with an upper hand in life, with some some set of cash or privilege or access, they're just in a different position. My parents had to build it all from right. scratch and it was very hard. And, and then I realized, well, why does it have to be that way? It doesn't have to be that way. You could actually make it easier for people to lift themselves up and expand opportunity. And that has really been core to my journey.
0: Wow, that's that's powerful. And so you, you speak a little bit to my my second question around, you know, what circumstances led to your 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 commitment to entrepreneurship? What keeps that passion burning?
1: What makes you still engage with it even after all this time? Well, I think to me, it's realizing that entrepreneurship is not just something that can help out someone like my parents, for for instance. I think what we found out now, and this is what the research has come out over the last decade plus around the power of entrepreneurship, not just for you know one family, let's say, but for all of society. Yes. That this is research that came out in the last decade that says that almost all net job creation comes from young businesses. That is older businesses, businesses older than five years, between five years to nine years of age of business, they kind of cancel each other out. They net zero. Some grow, some shrink, but they they net zero in terms of job growth. And older businesses over 10 years of age actually net negative, that in times of crisis, they shed jobs, but they don't add jobs back after the crisis Mm -hmm. is over. And we're seeing that play out right. right now in the economy. And so if you want to create jobs and politicians and our society and our economy, we talk about the importance of job creation all the time, but almost never, no one ever says, well, we have to link that to young business creation and helping entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. And now we know it's not just job growth. We also know that's where GDP comes mm-hmm. from. That's where innovation comes from. We also know it correlates to lifting up the incomes of an entire community around the entrepreneurs for every 1% increase in entrepreneurial activity. That correlates in a county to a $400 increase in the household incomes of $400 annual income increase in a community. And then we also know it helps fight poverty. For every 1% increase in entrepreneurship rates, there's a 2% corresponding decline in the poverty rate in a state. And so we know entrepreneurship is powerful across all these aspects of society and it lifts up opportunity, it gives people new hope, and it creates wealth. But then you hardly hear it talked about. I mean, we got through a presidential election last year and entrepreneurship was almost nowhere on the agenda. And so to me, there's this big gap between what we aspire to do as a, as a society and then what we actually do. And, and that's what keeps me going because I realize that we've got a chance to take entrepreneurship and turn it into a force that actually, can actually lift up an entire economy and actually drive drive people's well-being and prosperity. Wow, that's that's powerful. So so
0: you know, let's go back. You were saying that in the statistics you were given that, you know, almost entrepreneurship has a more of an impact. Any uptick in entrepreneurship has double or more of an impact than Wall Street, right? Wall Street versus Main Street. And so why do you think that Main Street is so neglected if it if it actually yields a better outcome?
1: It's because it's the sum of small things, mm. right? Like if you look at the headlines of our paper every day, it's, we look at big headlines. And big headlines are, what did General Electric do this past weekend? This past weekend, they just announced they were splitting into three divisions. What is Facebook doing in terms of you know, its corporate strategy? They changed their name. That's a big yeah. headline. But when two people meet in a coffee shop and sketch out a plan for the future of their business, when a customer sits down in front of a young business and tries out a new product, when the first 20 customers appear for a new restaurant that's opening. That's not a headline, but that's actually where the jobs are created. That's where innovation's happening. That's where stuff gets sparked and grows. What's more important to the future of the world? Is it that Facebook changed its name? Or was it when Facebook actually got started and when the the company actually launched? When it got launched, no one cared. But now when it changes its name, of course, the whole world cares. So there's a problem in just how we process news and information that Entrepreneurship is the sum of all these little things happening every day across an entire economy, and because it doesn't make the news, we tend to forget about it. But we we know in the aggregate it's huge. For instance, when Amazon HQ2, when Amazon wanted to build its second headquarters, and all these you know 238 cities were fighting for 50,000 jobs, everyone talked about those headlines. Well, we want 50,000 jobs. Well, they didn't talk about is that those jobs were getting created all the time. So in Kansas City, which is a mid-sized city in America, same period of time that Amazon promised to build 50,000 jobs, Kansas City's entrepreneurs were building 80,000 jobs. And that never makes the headlines because it's lots of it's people hiring one, two, three people at a time. It's not it's not like you're hiring 50,000 people all at one time and so the sum of little things tends to get get ignored in the news. It is so true.
0: Let's look a little, little bit into as you've kind of traveled the world, traveled the country and you've seen different ecosystems from an observant standpoint also from a builder standpoint. What are some of the
1: commonalities that you've seen as you, you know, through, throughout your 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 tenure? Oh, yeah, my my tenure has been a long time. I've been doing this work and supporting entrepreneurs for over two decades now. So I've been lucky enough that I've traveled a lot. I've seen most of this country. I've been to entrepreneurial ecosystems, both in this country and around the world. And I will tell you the urge to be entrepreneurial is deep mm. in the human fabric. Wow. I mean, it's it's a wow. God-given talent that humans have that other animals don't have, if you think about it. Like humans, they look at the world, they see a gap or they see a problem or they see a need. And we've got the ability to imagine something better and to think, what if this existed? What if that was invented? What if this product or service could fill that fill that void and make make something better or solve that right. problem, and that's the entrepreneurial urge to to start something, to create something, to fill a gap, to fix a problem, and it's just so so widespread in the world. And so the common th- one common theme is that that's universal. It's part of the human experience. The other common theme is how much that's being suppressed now. That we we've, we've created an economy that actually tends to favor big over little tends to favor incumbency over innovative yes. and and so what people don't what we f- we feel it ourselves that is we feel like how come the system ignores me how come the system takes me for granted how come someone working in a stable job for a large corporation seems to be so comfortable and feel like their lives are just so easy while someone that's working you know trying to build something that's actually a value and needed in society has such a hard time With the basics, right, just around trying to get the basics in your life accomplished and done. And so, we've actually built a system that's tilted right now. It's actually tilted, tilted the wrong way. And the entrepreneurs know this. Like the Kauffman Foundation, where I used to work, did a survey of entrepreneurs, and eighty-one percent of entrepreneurs say the system is tilted in favor of large companies against them. And something like sixty-nine percent say that government doesn't care about entrepreneurs. And so we feel it. If you're in the entrepreneurial world, if you're in the business of trying to create new things and make them better from scratch, you realize the system tends to take you for granted. And so what we need to do is to start tilting that. And that's a universal problem. It's a worldwide problem because big. We've 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 left an era of big companies and industrialization. And big companies, you know, to be fair, have done a lot of great things. I mean, they brought these vaccines that are saving so many lives. They've accomplish huge efficiencies in supply chains and moving goods throughout the world, they're able to create these massive platforms that have connected people. And so I have no illusions about that You know, big companies are, don't play a critical role, but the balance is out of whack, that we've actually made it super, super hard to start something small and new, and we've over-favored the folks that have built really big things. So you you mentioned your work at the Kaufman Foundation.
0: That's a perfect segue. We I back in 2018, I had the privilege of attending the ESHIP summit. And that's when I first was introduced to your work and the work of your team and and the Kauffman Foundation and was just blown away by the probably six to 800 people in the room in the plenary sessions and the level, the attention to detail and, you know, uh, the mixed trust with the, the company you were using to do all of the, the plenary sessions and map everyone around the room. And I was running at that time, I was at Penn state. I was running a founded, a incubator called the mom Valley Launchbox. box uh, shout out to the launch box. And what we, what we went to the eShip ship summit, uh, Philip Gaskin, one of your coworkers had told us he's a he's a Penn State alum, and he said, "Hey, you got to go to the EShip Summit." So he we got us to go there, and uh, when we when we got there, we were blown away. We didn't know anything about this entrepreneurship uh, movement that was happening globally, and EShip was our first introduction to the global movement of entrepreneurship. And uh, when I tell you, that there were people literally there from New Zealand to Alaska. I met the mayor of, I don't know, Nova Scotia. I mean, there were people there from places that people don't even know how to pronounce. And it was just amazing to see the energy in the room, to see how like it was palpable, to see the connectivity, to see, you know, a, a level of passion. So let's I have a few questions I want to kind of spring out of this. One, you know, do you feel like eShip became what you wanted it to become? And two, let's talk about your journey through Kaufman Foundation and the
1: work you did with the eShip Summit. Yeah, well, Aaron, hearing you say that is so heartwarming to me personally. I mean, it just touch it touches me because what you experienced is exactly what we were hoping would happen: that people doing this great work, mostly in isolation with each o- from each other, mostly at their local level driven by passion and mission were disconnected from what was happening across you know the the rest of the country and the world because they and they felt they were alone in that journey and mm-hmm. so what we wanted to do with Eship was to pull together a community of people across the country and the world that were doing the work but could benefit from the being part of a bigger community these are it's the community of community yeah. builders and the ecosystem of yeah. ecosystem builders and and it kind of goes to what I was just saying earlier, that there is this urge and this movement. Like, it's very primal. Like, people want to be entrepreneurial. And those of us who've worked at the local community level know that that there are people in communities that see that and are trying to lift that up. But theres not there hasn't been a common set of practices or or models or language or framework or metrics around how you do that at the local level consistently at high quality. And then how do you speak about it to the powers right. that be? so they can support it and nurture it and do what do their job in making it happen. And so the Eship effort included a summit and included community building, it included playbooks and models and and a lot of activism around how you lift up this whole way of thinking around the work. And and so it, to a large extent it's been working and it's been really powerful. So people like you that have that came and got to participate in it got to see like I'm not alone, I'm part of thousands of people across the country and the world trying to do this stuff and and therefore we can speak we can speak that truth to the powers that be and we can actually lift this work up and we can learn from what other people are doing and make our work better and faster and more effective so that's been really powerful to to see that but in another sense the work is never done because the, it, there's always so much to do and and i think it's only now even though people within the entrepreneurial support community now start to they've been they're better connected and they see this shift the The power the people in positions of power that can actually influence this, whether it's people in in economic development or in workforce training or in education or in capital or in tax policy or in in community building or in banking or capital access or whatever. there's so many different fields to be touched in this work. They're just starting to hear about it, right? like we we can't convince ourselves because we are connected now more better amongst the entrepreneurial support community that the people in these other communities that, that touch our work have heard the message yet. And so that's where we need to go now is we've actually got to take this message that we've been building and actually make sure that those in all these other realms that affect, our, affect entrepreneurship uh, hear it and, and, and believe in it and understand it and can support it properly. Yeah,
0: that's, that's, that's powerful. Now, what, what was the impetus for you starting the conference, Egypt Summit, like what made you
1: want to take on that daunting task? With the eShip yes. Summit, it was it was exactly that urge that you, you're. You, it basically was to help folks like like yeah. you, Aaron, and and the you know the thousands of folks across the country and the world that you know s- realize this was important. I I think it's because I had been around enough that I realized that every, so many people at the local community, regional, state level were doing similar things, because I'd been asked to go to all these different mm-hmm. places to do this work. But I realized they weren't talking yeah. to each other and that people were having to replicate this stuff all the time. They were having to reinvent like these great recipes every single time. And not only that, they didn't have credibility because within their own communities, they sounded like these lone, lone voices out there, right? Like if you're in your community doing great work, you know it's great work, but then you try to talk to you know your mayor or your senator or your chambers of commerce or your investor, investment community. And they, they didn't realize what great looked like because they weren't part of that bigger conversation. And so ESHIP was really meant to empower people on the ground uh, to get better at what they do, to realize they're part of something bigger, and to give them a voice and leverage back home. So they could take that and they could, they could call their state senator or their mayor and say, you know what, here's what we're doing. And it's, it's the same thing as like what's happening in 30 other places and it's worked in all these other places. And here's how we know it's working. And here's what it looks like when it's successful. And here's how you measure it. And all those things you can't do when you're alone, right? You can do when you're together. And, and so that's what we really set out to do with the eShip Summit. You are doing this amazing work at Coppen
0: Foundation. And, you know, this summit really kind of took flight and whatnot. Now, what, what brought you to step away and kind of lead this effort right to start? What, what, what drove you, or, or you know, Convicted you to birth, right to start
1: well, w- one of the things I realized was that entrepreneurship was something that people at the ground level saw as a huge need and a huge op and a huge opportunity. but the 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 establishment, the people that control the resources that are li- supposed to be our leadership in society didn't quite see it yet. And the reason was, It wasn't their fault, is what I started to see. It was because we lacked an infrastructure to advocate for this issue, that there was no voice for the entrepreneur at scale across the country. And if you think about every issue that matters in American life, there's some kind of advocacy infrastructure for it. So if you believe in guns rights, you can join the NRA. If you believe in civil liberties, you can join the ACLU. But if you believe in entrepreneurs' rights, who do you join? Who fights for you? Who's your voice? Now, at the local level, we've got lots of amazing work at the local level. But what had not happened was an attempt to try to stitch those voices together into a broader narrative that could that could really move the country and could also provide power to the folks on the ground at the local level. And so right to start was born out of that idea that there was a need to lift up the voices of entrepreneurs, especially those that had been left behind by the system. And so what we we call it right to start because we actually believe it's a fundamental right just like you've got a right to speech and you've got a right to worship you've got a right to start you've got a right to be entrepreneurial and to access what you need to be entrepreneurial and in fact it's it was in the original promise of America America never fully realized this vision but the idea was that every person should be able to access their potential and take their god-given talents and contribute value to the world and build their own economic lives and control their economic destinies. And so that's the promise of America that we've never realized, but we've got to get back to that. And we've got to figure out how do we get people the resources to be able to do that? How do we tif- t- tilt this playing field back in favor of the little person? So the system has basically been been stilted in the wrong direction. The right to be entrepreneurial has actually been crushed and ignored and neglected. And so we've actually got to shift the system back to empower people to have that right and to be able to exercise this freedom. And so Right to Start was born out of the idea that we've got to take that on. And what I saw at the Kauffman Foundation was that the philanthropies can't really do that. They, they cannot build an activist base from the ground up. And so Right to Start is a grassroots ground up reform movement that we're building. And so we launched this publicly less than a year and a half ago, and we are now build, actively building grassroots operations in six communities now. We've got a nationwide ambassador network of 19 influencers and thought leaders in our network. And we've now got at least five states that are interested in introducing legislation focused on pro-entrepreneur reform. These are what we call right-to-start acts. And we passed the first one in the Missouri House of Representatives earlier this year, But now we've got a bunch of other states raising their hands that are saying, we want to do this too. We've actually got bills drafted now in several states. We just did a hearing last week in New Mexico to 48 members of the state legislature in New Mexico. And people want to take this on. This is actually becoming a real issue now to actually pass these right to start acts. And we're here to support. And what we want to do is over the next few years is build this into a full national campaign from the grassroots on up where people in positions of leadership. Have to respond and are given a way to respond and support the entrepreneurs' voices that are that we're lifting up, and so that's right to start. And we, you know, we've, we're just beginning the journey, and we've been thrilled at the progress we've made so far. And it's actually 2022 is going to be a, a a really a big a big fast ramp for us because we've got a lot of activity happening now. It's getting faster and faster.
0: Congratulations! This is powerful, and as you're right, you're absolutely right. There is no one to kind of like corral the voice of the voiceless when in this entrepreneurship space, and so that that's that's powerful that you're doing this work. And so, when you're looking at the the work ahead of you, what are some of the the frustrations or hurdles that you've you've had to tackle or face
1: so far? And maybe share a couple of su- success stories too. Yeah, the so I love what you the way you put it, the voice of the voiceless, because I think if you think about what makes entrepreneurs voiceless, it's not that they don't have concerns, but entrepreneurs generally have no time and no money to make, give a voice for themselves. They're they're the hustlers, right? They're the folks that are 200% dedicated to whatever they're working on. And so it's just a natural imbalance of the system. Like the system is always going to take the people that have no time and no money to have a voice for themselves and ignore them. And so I think the biggest challenge we have is if if entrepreneurs, if we survey entrepreneurs, they'll tell us that because a survey is pretty fast. But to actually get entrepreneurs to spend time advocating for themselves is actually really hard because they just don't have the means to do it by and large. The vast, vast majority of entrepreneurs are really small, starting out with very little capital, of no capital, have no time. They're just trying to make it and trying to figure out a path for themselves. And so we've got to lift that up and realize that if we don't give if we don't intentionally go out there and look for the voices of the voiceless that we want to lift up and make heard, then it's not going to happen on its own. And by and large, I think the biggest barrier we have is is a kind of apathy from our leadership because most of them say, oh, well, that's really not a problem, is it? Entreprene- you know, anyone can start a business. It's not that hard to start a business. You could just go online and register something and it's just a few hundred dollars. And what they what is embedded in so much of that is first of all saying a few hundred dollars is no big deal. When half the country right. is living paycheck to paycheck, a few hundred exactly. dollars is a lot for someone to sink into. Just, the, just to get permission to start a business should not be a mm-hmm. few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars. It actually ends up being like 700 bucks on average to fill out all the forms and fees to start a business in this country. And it's even mm-hmm. more money to have to hire the accountants and the lawyers if you need to figure all that out. We, right. should be, we shouldn't be making other people pay for the right to start a business and create a job for themselves and for others. They, we should be paying them. We should be supporting them. We've got the whole system backwards right now. So by and large, the biggest barrier is apathy, where people say, especially people who've been in positions of privilege and have been fortunate in life, to not have to worry about it where a few hundred bucks is no problem, where filling out a form is like elementary and they understand what an LLC or an S Corp or C Corp is, they understand what pass-through taxation is, they understand what preferred shares are, they understand what articles of incorporation look like. For them, it's no big deal. For most people, that's really hard and it's really complicated. And every time you make someone do something else, you've just added on yet another barrier that could keep them from doing it. And so we have to really uh, look at how we tackle that apathy and that lack of understanding of the entrepreneurial journey. And so where the success has come from uh, in the work is actually where we bring to life some of these challenges that seem so small in individual cases, but are actually huge in the aggregate. And so in Northwest Arkansas, for example, we have an entrepreneur who started a bakery. Daimara Baker is her name. So her, she's, her name is Baker and she started a bakery. And <laughs> what she, we, we brought her on board. We actually hired her as an advocate for a Right to Start. And part of her job is to talk to the entrepreneurs in the community. And so to understand what their pro, what their challenges are, she happens to be a Latina immigrant. So she knows that community and she's able to hear what their concerns are. And one of the concerns they talk about a lot is the fee to start a business charged by the city of Fayetteville. And it's not even a whole lot of money, but the entrepreneurs will say, oh, that fee is just, I, you know, I just, I just, you know, it's just a barrier. It's kind of, you know, it just creates a challenge for us to have to pay that fee and to fill out the form. And it's a bit intimidating. All these things just make it harder. And so the city of Fayetteville, through her work as an ad, in advocacy from right to start, brought her on board into their advisory committee for economic development, and now in their plans for the city of Fayetteville next year, they're waiving the first year license fee for new businesses. Nice. And it's like the simplest thing, right? And if you talk to like, you know, someone in power, you say, waiving the first year license fee for a new business in one city. It's a huge deal. They'll A lot of them will say, well, that's not that big a deal. It's a huge deal. Because you imagine we have now put that money that we were going to make someone pay for the privilege to start a business and we've given it back to them. And the people that need it the most, we've actually basically put money in their pockets. It's like a seed investment in their business. And you imagine for doing that and scaling that up and what we could do if we could start to think like that across the whole country is what we're focused on. So that's the kind of success we're starting to see through the simple things of just talking to entrepreneurs, capturing their needs and their voices and lifting them up.
0: What role do you feel VCs and, and PE kind of plays Play in this space as you are doing this policy work what what role do you think they
1: should play in all of, all of this work Well, venture capital and and private equity are huge parts of the financial ecosystem for entrepreneurs, but we also have to look at what what it really means for the ordinary entrepreneur so venture capital really only is f- appropriate for less than one percent of the actual startup businesses that are formed so uh Right now, most businesses, 80% of businesses are individuals that are just starting out. And it could someday turn into a huge business, but they're starting out solo or they're starting out you know, on the, doing a side hustle. And, and by the way, that's how Mr. Kaufman, who created the Kaufman Foundation, started his business. So some people like to dismiss these solopreneurs, but Mr. Kaufman in 1950 started selling vitamins from the back of his trunk of his car. And 35 years later, his, his business was one of the nation's leading biopharmaceutical firms that was worth over $6 billion. So if people try to tell me solopreneurs don't matter, well, I've got a story to tell you about what a big deal it can make. And the truth is you don't know the difference. You don't know when someone's starting out and they're just going to be a solopreneur or they're going to build a billion-dollar business. And you know what? And even if they don't build a billion-dollar business, they've created a job for themselves and they've created a living for their families. And you've got to respect and honor that difference. For capital, we've got to think more broadly, not just around the high-growth, high-tech businesses because you don't know what's going to become a great pharmaceutical company someday, but you have to create capital all along that spectrum uh, from the small and as it grows to the medium business to the growth business. And you've got to create, I like to talk about, it's like an ice cream, today it's like an ice cream store if if you're a startup business, an ice cream store that has two flavors of capital, uh, venture capital and banking. And the problem is venture capital serves less than 1% of the businesses, and banking serves about 16% of the businesses. And banking is super conservative. They're looking at businesses that have been around for at least three to five years with financial records, with stable revenue, and with physical assets that you can secure as collateral. So that's that's only a small fraction of businesses today, which leaves 83% plus businesses that have no capital really designed to serve them. And so... What we have to do is to think more broadly around what are the types of capital to fill all those gaps. So the ice cream store has many, many flavors, not just two flavors of capital, and and you're seeing that now. There's revenue share, revenue based investing. There's profit sharing mechanisms. There's more cooperative, cooperative uh, financing mechanisms getting born. There's flexible venture capital models. There's expansion of micro lending. There's online lending, fintech platforms. There's crowdfunding sources. We've got to nurture all those so entrepreneurs, startup companies can look across that whole spectrum and realize what capital best fits my needs, when and where, and we can customize it to fit every business when it needs it. That is in the process of happening. We're still early days on that, but I think that's where it needs to go to. We're not trying to squeeze companies into the traditional VC model. We're actually looking at the type of capital that fits a business at that moment, and we have the flexibility to adjust capital as the company grows and evolves. Now, what does America look like
0: if right to start is, you know, one day in full bloom, meets its goal, full throttle, and you've accomplished what, you, what
1: you're you trying to accomplish here? What does the the landscape of America look like? The landscape will be where the power has been shifted back to the individual. And you have the power. If you want, you can stay employed in a stable job. But if you want to start something new or you want to start something on the side or your family members or your friends or your neighbors want to start something and build something, they have the full power to do it and they're not giving something up to do that. They actually need the control and the optionality in their lives to do that. And I think that is really, it's a it's a it's it's an issue where the power balance is tilted back. And so if we want to create a level playing field, we've actually got to tilt it, right? And which sounds like, contradictory, but it's but it's true because entrepreneurship is so much harder. Starting something new is so much harder than staying in something stable. And so if we want people to build new things and to create better ways to solve problems and to f- create better products and services and fill gaps in our society, we've got to sh- tilt the power back to people that are trying to start something. And so that's what the country will look like is essentially tilted in the right direction to help Help empower the uh, what I call the starters, the makers, the doers, the dreamers, or the people actually trying to create something in the world. And and right now it doesn't look like that. Right now, if we don't if we don't succeed with right to start, we're going to see increasing concentration of power amongst incumbent large companies, and it's going to get harder and harder to start a business. And you know what people often are surprised to hear is that the country since the 1970s has been in a startup slump. We've actually been declining in uh, the percentage of businesses in this country that are young entrepreneurial businesses, it's fallen by roughly half over the last four plus decades. Now, last year, because of the pandemic over the past year and a half, there's been this spike up in people starting new businesses, which means that they're actually trying to adjust to the economy or some of them got laid off. Some of them are are doing it voluntarily. And that in some ways is is hopeful because it means there's a chance. We've got this this you know this is priming the pump of entrepreneurial activity. But the problem is the system is still basically the same system, that we actually haven't changed our fundamental system around economic governance, workforce, education, capital, taxation, uh, the regulatory landscape. Everything around our system is still the old industrial era system uh, basically of the past. We've got to adjust our governance and policy systems to the present and the future, and we've got to start building tomorrow, today. But we can't just assume because people... Were desperate, and they had to start something, or they decided that the pandemic just made them reevaluate their life, that they're going to start something different, that suddenly the whole system is better. we're We're still trying to we have people that are thinking twenty first century, but our system is still stuck in the twentieth century. And we've got to meet people where they are and where they're trying to go. And I feel like if we fail, it's my 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 hunch and my fear is it's going to go back to where it was. The system's going to revert revert back. We've got, we can't let that happen. We've got to grab this opportunity and, and change things. Last question. What's next for, for Victor? Well, right to start's got to work. I'm dedicated to making this thing happen. And uh, I've really, to, to me, it's more than just a case of building another organization. It's really a movement that is empowering for everyone who cares about entrepreneurs. And I want everyone who cares about this issue to have a home within our work. And I want to provide tools <laughs> Uh, for everybody on the ground at the grassroots in their communities in their neighborhoods to do to be better advocates for entrepreneurs, and so for me, I just I want to see this happen. And and to me, if we cannot, we you know we've got another presidential election coming up in 2024. If entrepreneurship and access to entrepreneurial opportunity is not on the front of the American agenda in 2024, I think we're we're clearly falling behind at that point. And so I'm really targeting that next. Presidential cycle. I want entrepreneurship to be front and center in the national debate, and not just national at the state and the local and the regional level as well. It's got to be something that people talk about. They they ha- they have the language, the vocabulary. They have a place to join. They have a way to participate. To me, that's that's just. To me, it's imperative. We we have to do it. Powerful. How can we best support you? What do you do? You have any uh, website we should go to? Yeah. Join Right to Start. The movement is at righttostart.org. And uh, the simplest way is to sign up for the newsletter, sign up for our social media and follow us. 2022, we're going to be ramping up our grassroots engagement base. So there'll be more and more ways for people to get involved and to share and to participate. But right now, sign up, get in our grassroots army and and stay tuned. Uh, more, more to come. And we've, we've got a lot of work because we're trying to build this thing you know while it's in motion but but if you join us now you'll be part of that effort as we grow and i'd really welcome everyone being part of it wonderful well victor thank you so much for your time this has
0: been amazing and we look forward to connecting with you soon here now that we're both in the heartland of america hopefully we can get another cup of coffee and and do a little bit more entrepreneurship
1: talk all right i'd love to i'd love to come back down to tulsa and see you again Thanks so much aaron